It's the American Theatre Wing's 69th Annual Tony Awards, presented by the Broadway League and the American Theatre Wing. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. So we're back. We're ready to dig into a new season, and this is going to be our most recent season yet. We're going to talk about 2015. Caption, the 2015 (laughs) Tony Awards. (laughs) These were held on June 7th, 2015. The new musicals that year were Fun Home, which had 12 nominations and five wins, An American in Paris, which had 12 nominations and four wins, Something Rotten, which had 10 nominations and one win, and The Visit, which had five nominations and zero wins. The new plays were The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which had six nominations and five wins, Disgraced, which had... One nomination and zero wins, Hand to God, which had five noms and zero wins, and Wolf Hall, parts one and two, which had eight nominations and one win. And this was a big season. I think that there were 37 new shows, um, including plays and musicals, and 22 of them received at least one nomination. And there's something kind of unusual this season, which has only started happening within the last few years, which is where shows that are not nominated at all still perform because really the only thing you need to perform at the Tonys is money like yeah. to, <laughs> to pay to do it so there were three shows that got zero nominations that still performed Finding Neverland It Should Have Been You and The Revival of Gigi well The Revival of Gigi did have one nomination oh fuck you're right it yes. didn't get but it didn't get nominated for Best Revival Best Revival so normally it would not perform there were 10 new musicals that season and Six of them did not get a single nomination, which is kind of insane. And we'll talk about those a little more next episode, or this episode if it comes up. Yeah, including the Tupac musical, Holler If Ya Hear Me. And we also have, I totally forgot until I was looking at this, this was the year of the Sideshow revival that ran even shorter than the original production, did not get any nominations. Everyone said, no thank you, Sideshow. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Again. This uh, ceremony was hosted by Alan Cumming and Kristen Chenoweth. Checking back into the 2005 (laughs) Tony Awards, which up until this point was um, the most recent ceremony that we had covered, I think that they kind of figured out a lot of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And they started doing the kind of controversial thing that actually the Oscars are in trouble for, although they just said they were going to reverse it, which is showing some of the awards off screen, like some of the important awards during the commercial breaks. I, was this the first year that they had done it? I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. I would rather not see a Finding Neverland performance and get to see some full speeches. Exactly. Especially when it's like for Fun Home, they have like this historical win with Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone, like the first all-female composing team to win best score. And I actually remember while I was watching it like live the first time because Sam Gold wins and he's like, I think Janine and Lisa are still backstage. Um, And I think Janine and Lisa aren't, uh, they're still backstage. Um, So they're going to have to watch this on YouTube later. And I remember everyone like on Twitter or whatever was like, what did that, does that mean that they won? Because they didn't tell, they didn't say until later that was like earlier in the night, Janine and Lisa, like, so it's kind of this deflating moment. Also, yeah, in the teleprompter of their like, what you missed, Janine and Lisa aren't even in the same frame. I noticed that (laughs) when they have two people, they just like cannot figure it out. Well, and since then they have, because the next year I believe was Hamilton year. So, like, of course, they were going to have score on screen because everyone was obsessed with Lin-Manuel Miranda. And then the next year, wait, no, I think I'm missing a year in between. But I remember since then they were like, we're going to show one of them. So the year that Mean Girls was up, they did show, they broadcast book because everyone thought Tina Fey was going to win. And they were like, people are going to want to watch Tina Fey. But then the band's visit won. And, you know, this uh, guy (laughs) who nobody knows got to have his moment of glory, which is nice. So it was hosted by Kristen Chenoweth and Alan Cumming, as we said, And they come out to Easy Street, which is really cute because they 
played Rooster and Lily in the like 99 TV movie of Annie, which is like a really sweet nod to that. And where's Kathy Bates? I know. <laughs> um, Kathy Bates was busy. They, I think they do a great job. This whole night, like they can really handle everything you need to be a host. They have a lot of great costume changes. Yeah, they definitely do. And I found myself laughing out loud at certain <laughs> points. For the opening, she's wearing just like a giant tux jacket as a dress and mm-hmm. like, you know, extremely high heels and he's wearing like a purple short suit, which is perfect. Which I love. I know. He looks like a cute little schoolboy. <laughs> <laughs> and they do kind of like a combo monologue and number where they are talking and telling jokes, then they'll kind of go like in and out of bits of different songs. And it starts with him doing like a very self-loathing Willkommen. Willkommen, bienvenue. Welcome yes again. Brenda. The revival of the revival of Cabaret had closed, I guess, a month or two earlier in March. So for the most part, they're... I thought their opening monologue was pretty good, but there is one part of it that really hasn't aged well. And I remember, I don't remember the details. I think we're probably going to get into it next week when we look at Finding Neverland. But Finding Neverland kind of had a troubled road to Broadway and it was supposed to come in like many seasons before it did. And Harvey Weinstein produced it and was really like pushing it. And he's obviously the one who paid for it to perform. And there's some really gross now jokes of them kind of like groveling to him. We're both available for movies. At very reasonable rates, as you well know. It's tough to watch now, knowing uh, what we know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just Even feel seeing, like it's been a minute since I saw his face. I know. And I was like, ugh. Seeing his like smug little face on top of the world. You And you also see um, later, you can see that Jared and Ivanka are sitting behind Sutton Foster like in the second row. Ugh. Get all these evil I, people. I know. Out of I ours. like had literally like a visceral shock when I saw her because it's like it makes sense. They were kind of like New York socialites before they were, you know, the highest people in our government. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they wish they were just back to their life of sitting in the second row of the Tonys now. Yeah, um, as we all do. I think that in the opening number, the funniest part that wasn't meant to be funny for me was Helen Mirren was playing the Queen of England this season and they start singing There's Nothing Like a Dame to her and she's like so not into it. I know, I I remember that from, I remember that from originally watching it that Helen Mirren did not want to play ball. There is nothing like this game on Broadway. No one has boobs like this game. No one moves like this no one drinks like this day. No one drinks like this day. No one drinks like this day. Well, this is what they run with me. Sorry, Helen. Sorry. Sorry. I can't. She's American. You have great taste. Great taste. Walk away. She's not on She's not on mute. I know. One thing. Thank you. And we agree with you. We need to leave. Okay. Should we get into... Well, actually, maybe let's keep talking about Helen definitely struck me because you're just doing this fun little opening bit and then you're like oh yeah and you won i think supporting actor or actress in a musical is generally the first one it's very weird to start off with leading and it's very funny that helen mirren wins for playing the queen again in like a different thing but it was written by the guy who wrote the queen so he's just like obsessed with the queen she and her speech sets an interesting tone and i guess a theme of the season she makes a passing reference to the many british productions on broadway this season saying and of course, an incredible cast of British and American actors who make who make the Atlantic look like a little creek you can just kind of pop across. When Curious Incident wins big um, tonight, we'll remember that little comment. They do the featured actor in a play next, which also has the audience winner, Richard McCabe, which is presented by Deborah Messing and Anna Klumski wearing almost exactly the same dress. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is also a perfect example of British people having the best speeches where you like, he kind of gets up and you're like, who is this guy? And he was just like totally charming and like really <laughs> uh, enthusiastic and sweet. And you, he leaves and you're like, I love him and I would die for him. Yes. Yeah, he is like the sweetest looking guy ever. <laughs> well, this is nice. Thank you so much, Tony voters. Um, 
Uh, the last time I made a, a, an acceptance speech, I didn't really know what to say, and um, afterwards, a well-known British actor came up to me and said, prepare your speech, you tosser. I feel very honoured to have been singled out for this award amongst such fine quality work, especially since no one here has ever even heard of the Prime Minister who I play in the show. However, were, were he alive today, I know Harold Wilson would be very tickled at being featured in a hit Broadway show. So this is for you, Harold. Thank you so much. So maybe let's get into Fun Home. Yes. The big winner. Fun Home opened on uh, April 19th, 2015 and ran until September 10th, 2016. It ran for 583 performances. It had a book by Lisa Crone, music by Janine Tesori, lyrics by Lisa Crone, directed by Sam Gold, and it was based on Alison Bechtel's graphic memoir of the same name. And the synopsis is, The Tony Award-winning musical Fun Home traces the coming of age of lesbian author Alison Bechtel, from her youth to her years at Oberlin College, and finally to the present, where Alison, now grown, is struggling to write her own graphic autobiography. As Alison reflects on her past, she struggles to make sense of it, particularly her relationship with her father, Bruce, a closeted gay man and the owner of the family business, the Bechtel Funeral Home, Fun Home, as it's known to young Alison and her brothers. As she watches her father's self-loathing consume him, Alison recognizes her own experience of discovering and ultimately embracing her identity. As Fun Home progresses, Alison is drawn deeper and deeper into her memories, finally entering into them, desperate but unable to reverse her father's self-destruction. I know. Wow. That, even that description gave me chills. So it originally was at the public before it came to Broadway. It was developed for a long time. There's actually a lot of um, similarities between this and Sunday in the Park with George. I felt like both in terms of how it was developed and sort of the content and the execution. Like even the opening, it sort of opens in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Opens and closes with kind of this arrange, like collection of notes that reminded me of how the score of Sunday opens also. Yeah. The opening in the similar way is kind of swelling into creation. Yeah. Literally from the moment they announced this show in like 2009 and 2010, I was like, I am on top of this. (laughs) Like Janine Tesori adapting Fun Home. This is going to be amazing. And I literally went to the second preview at the public because I was like, I got to get in on this. And I... I saw it twice at the public and once on Broadway, and I was just totally obsessed with it. And every time I saw it, it was really amazing. That's interesting, because I think that probably the biggest difference um, between the public version and the Broadway version is that at the public, it was performed in like a traditional proscenium arch, whereas Circle in the Square, as we all know, is theater in the round. Yeah. Do you think that that changed it drastically? It sort of made it feel a little bit more, like a little more voyeuristic in a way, like Mm -hmm. you're really peeking into this woman's like private memories and private moments. And also like how you have the ability to really see it literally from different angles. And there's like parts where you can't see people's faces and like, you know, the other people in different parts of the audience are experiencing it in a different way, I think. Mm -hmm. But content wise, it was pretty much the same. And like in terms of, I remember there was like a song, another song for Small Allison in the beginning that was replaced, but the pieces were pretty much all there at the public. I think that one thing I do want to mention about it being at Circle in the Square, and um, it feels like there are blueprints on the stage. Yeah. Um, And I think that being able to look down at that and the way that prop elements are lifting in and out of trap doors and stuff, um, I think that from that vantage point, it really makes it seem as though you're sort of like looking at a little miniature. Yeah, totally. I think it's so amazing that this show not only made it to Broadway, but also at the Tonys, it won Best Score, Book, Director, Actor, and Musical. Mm-hmm. And it had a really healthy tour. And even still, I feel like I was just in Buffalo last weekend, and there is a production that's being mounted Um, in the spring. So this is like a piece of material that seems very non-commercial and not necessarily adaptable to theater. And that was something that they struggled with a lot. You know, Alison Bechtel says a lot that she was very um, nervous at first. It must be so crazy to like see 
not only your life story on stage, but to see you like being portrayed at three different ages. She said that she like texted Beth Malone, who plays her as an adult and says, I feel like I've learned something about myself watching you. It's such a unique and intense experience that nobody nobody else knows what that's like. This is from a Slate article about the development of the show. I asked Bechtel, who is obsessive about presenting a truthful version of events in her autobiographical comics, how it felt to hand over her story to someone else, knowing that the adaptation would inevitably involve inventions and conflations. It almost felt like a relief, the burden of accuracy being lifted, she told me. I feel like they get at something more essentially accurate than I was able to do. They understood the emotional backbone of the story better than I did, which was disturbing. What's more, she says her lack of intimate connection to the new format made it easier to let go. I have so little relationship to theater, especially musical theater. As a form, it's very alien to me, so I didn't feel very proprietary about it. I just let it go. And they also talk about how important it was to them to have current Allison in it, like to Mm -hmm. have it be from the perspective of a gay middle-aged woman, which is very underrepresented in the Broadway musical, Mm -hmm. especially in such like a complex and like sensitive way, the way that they write her. I think that, you know, it makes sense that Lisa and Janine did such a good job taking over and hearing the three of them, Allison, Lisa, and Janine speak about this in interviews and roundtables. I think that there were parts of the story of Allison's story that didn't necessarily um, translate into theater. And I think that also while writing Fun Home, um, Allison's mother was still living um, and she felt really uncomfortable sort of putting words into her mouth or, you know, having the mother's voice as defined as it became in the musical. But it was interesting to hear Allison talk about letting control go over to the team and saying like, oh, well, this didn't happen, but this surely could have been something that happened. And like, it's not changing the fabric of the narrative to like suggest that, you know, A, B or C happened if it helps create like a more cohesive story it seems like it was probably tough because it the chronology of it is so like splintered it kind of jumps back and forth between present day her as a child and her in college but it never feels convoluted and it really feels like it's building towards an emotional climax in a way that like is very impressive and very effective. Yeah, it's really taking the cartoon cell and bringing it to the stage, which is not, <laughs> as we learn from the Doonesbury musical, <laughs> um, is not very easy. They say they say that originally Allison's drawings were like a lot more involved in it and like represented on stage. And I think it's smart that they that they ended up taking that away and just sort of having her working in kind of an abstract way. And they have that device of her being like caption, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you can see that she's working on the book, but it, it's very theatrical. Yeah, I think for me, the piece of theater that it, while it's like very different in tone and the subject matter of how I learned to drive is very intense. Like, I think that the way that it jumps through time and has the, you know, older Allison being the person who's writing her own story, um, it reminds me a lot of Paula Vogel's How I Learned to Drive. Yeah, and they talk about, they have a list of the works that they referenced while they were working on it. They were reading Sondheim's two books, Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat, the librettos for a chorus line and the Who's Tommy and plays in which actors directly address the audience like Our Town and The Glass Menagerie. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that they bring up The Glass Menagerie because that's also a reference point for Carolina Change, which is really like in the same lineage of this show, also music by Janine Tesori. But that, that you know, closed in three months. I was sort of thinking about why that show failed and this one was much more successful and I feel like first of all there are a lot more moments of joy in this one and Mm. that that one is a lot darker and also maybe people are more willing to engage with uh, sexuality than they are with race yeah no definitely I think that obviously because of the common denominator of Janine in both of those shows it makes a lot of sense but even Lisa Crone and uh Tony Kushner Tony Kushner that's true (laughs) are very similar they're both playwrights with you know while Tony's become one of the most celebrated living playwrights and Lisa I is not they both really (laughs) (laughs) but this was a big 
deal for her, um, yeah. which I think she truly deserves it. I think she really pushed the idea of a musical book and lyrics, like pushed the conversation far further and much rawer than I feel like I've seen yeah. in like a play. And I think her lyrics for this are, even though I think the score for Carolina Change is better, I think her lyrics for this are better and like much clearer and I think Tony Kushner can get a little bit abstract where you're kind of like, what, what are you saying? And then when you listen to it like five times, you're like, oh, that's genius. Yeah. Um, and this this is much easier to get across. I mean, even at the Tony performance um, where Sidney Lucas, who plays Small Allison, mm-hmm. um, is singing uh, Ring of Keys, she is telling a story with the song, but it's not like a total you know, story song, like the night the lights went out in Georgia or something, you know, but there's just so much dimension to the story, the way that this show uses songs as storytelling mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, and this is like such an incredible performance, Mm -hmm. um, especially since she's so young and she just like it's just such a good marriage of performer and material. And the the setup is, you know, you have adult Allison kind of watching and setting up the situation. And it's um, small Allison and her dad at a diner. And it she sees like a butch delivery woman and she feels this like this sting of recognition. You didn't notice her at first, dad, but I did. I saw her the minute she walked in. I'd never seen a woman who looked like her. It was like I was a... A traveler in a foreign country who runs into someone from home. Someone they've never met before, but somehow just recognizes. Someone just came in the door Like no one I ever saw before I feel I feel It's just so... It's such a good song. I remember the first time, like, seeing, even seeing it that second preview, I was like... That is the song. That is the moment of this show. And Lisa Crone actually talks about, she talks a bunch about how she really struggled writing the lyrics to this song to not have it be something that people would laugh about, like not have it be like, like not list sort of stereotypical butch characteristics. And this is from, this is also from the Slate article. Crone was worried that audiences would laugh at that last song. I really struggled with finding language to describe the butch stranger that I didn't feel was a trigger for a straight audience, she told me. As a Tony voter, Crone sees every Broadway show, and she has grown weary of a tiresome trope. In several recent musicals, there was a moment where someone would say the word lesbian as a non sequitur because it was funny. I'd be so on board, and then I'd be slapped in the face by it. It was just like, this character's a joke. This is not a person. Can one new musical overcome years of lazy stereotyping? In the fun home preview that I recently attended, no one giggled when young Allison sang Ring of Keys. Instead, the song elicited gasps of recognition. Your swagger and your bearing and the just right clothes you're wearing, your short hair and your dungarees and your lace-up boots and your keys, oh, your And Sydney Lucas, who I think she's, I think she's probably around 11 at the time of this performance, but I think she was like nine when she started with the show. And like her performance is so real and, you know, she's got like the big camera right in her face and it's just like so perfectly modulated. I really like that her voice is like, like it's like childlike. It doesn't sound like overly trained Mm -hmm. or it just feels like so, so honest and so raw. Do you feel my heart saying hi in this whole luncheonette why am i the only one who sees your beautiful no i mean handsome and i think that in terms of a tony performance they could have opted to do two maybe like showier numbers yeah um and also in a cast that has judy kuhn and michael severus choosing to focus on this song that's exclusively sung by you know the youngest cast member that you know is as we both agree the define like one of the defining moments of the show speaks to how I feel like the production team behind Fun Home is putting the art over the commerce aspect but also still succeeding at the end of the day yeah and it's really 
it's really incredible that they were able to keep it like really keep the spirit of the original and keep the darkness keep the complexity in this kind of modern theater climate and I think that is you know not just I mean, it is because they developed it in like the nonprofit sphere first, and and took such a long time to to do it. And they were all really surprised when it got to Broadway. Yeah, you know, we mentioned Sam Gold wins Best Director. He's like a very young director who is, you know, at this point really just directing like very cerebral. A lot of cont- he works with Annie Baker, Baker a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> Isn't um, he like married to her sister or something? To Amy Herzog. No, I feel like he has some sort of connection where he's married, where he's like married to someone in her inner circle. Noah Baumbach's brother is married to Annie Baker. Oh, okay. That's what I'm thinking of. (laughs) And we talked about in 2005 how Ben Brantley hated everything and was very stingy with his raves, but he loved so many things this season and he raved about Fun Home both at the public and on Broadway. And, you know, I know Ben Brantley is like, has his issues, but when he gives like a well-written rave to something that I agree with. It's just like chef's kiss delight. (laughs) So here's a little excerpt from his review of Fun Home at the Public. This musical setting is one of those halls of mirrors, both familiar and unique, where most of us grew up. It's a place where the images of who you once were always linger, and where no matter how hard you try, you can't look at anyone else without seeing some of yourself. Such is the curse and comfort of belonging to a family. Like Tennessee Williams' is The Glass Menagerie, now in a revelatory revival on Broadway, Fun Home is framed by the questioning recollections of an artist, in this case a cartoonist who turns the shadows of her past into pen and ink. This is not to imply that the people thus summoned are anything less than flesh and blood. If many American musicals these days seem to turn their inhabitants into cartoons, this show, inspired by a comic strip-style book, has paradoxically created characters who are highly multidimensional. Fun Home, splendidly directed by Sam Gold, uses the ineffability of music and the artifice of theater to conjure a fourth dimension, that element of the unknowable that exists in all of us. Its universality comes from its awareness of how we never fully know even those closest to us, and the undercurrent of grown-up secrets intuited by children that exist to some degree in every family. Children begin by loving their parents, Oscar Wilde wrote. After a time they judge them. Rarely, if ever, do they forgive them. Every phase of that epigram seems to be taking place simultaneously in Fun Home. But this show has room for forgiveness, too. It knows that in those endless enigmas we call family, judgments are never final, and love never fades altogether. Within such uncertainty, Fun Home finds a shining clarity that lights up the night. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Ben definitely has redeemed himself. I know. (laughs) Oh, and it it, um, recouped its investment. It It didn't run super long. It and the band's visit are the two shortest-running um, Best Musical winners in the past 10 years. <laughs> yeah. But in the past few years, and I think the band's visit will have run for, like, two more performances than Fun Home or something like that. Since it is such a small show, there's only nine people in the cast, um, a seven-person orchestra. They didn't advertise too much, and uh, Circle in the Square is one of the smallest, maybe the smallest Broadway theater. I think Helen Hayes is. Oh, okay. It only cost $5.25 million to mount at a time when many Broadway musicals cost more than $15 million. So it did make money. I think that Fun Home is so amazing and feels so fresh because the two themes that it deals with father and daughter relationships and lesbianism are like people assume the target audience of musicals are like old Jews and gay men. (laughs) Um, But I think even just seeing what types of people are interested in Broadway online, it's like there's this whole population of queer women. Lisa Crone came to Janine being like, we need to adapt this into a musical. And I think that she, as a lesbian, was probably like we need the great american lesbian musical yeah and it's you know just talking about lacage last time which was 30 years before this like i can't believe it took 30 more years <laughs> like it's crazy enough that the first musical with a gay couple didn't come until the mid 80s the first lesbian musical took until 2015 and i guess like the last thing about the score that i feel like i need to get off my chest (laughs) it's just so complex and nuanced like i think it's working on so many different levels like there's like elements of tv jingles and like 70s pop music that um find themselves in there you could see that janine tesori is classically trained and like has like a real knack for this like i 
idea of Allison like digging through the archives of her memory and there are like certain tinges to it that just feel like she's like digging and like hitting a nerve and yeah it's yeah it's amazing it's so amazing (laughs) and like it's just so moving like even though I I loved the show at the time I had never listened to the cast recording because I knew it would just upset me and both when I was listening to the cast recording and when I was you know watching the bootleg to just refresh myself I was like and I like don't cry at a lot of stuff like I'll tear up a lot but I can usually keep it in but I was just like full-on weeping at the end of Fun Home when I was you know revisiting for this when I was watching the bootleg and listening to the recording it made me think of this part in Beloved where (laughs) um the main male character whose name I forget talks about like closing off all of his like emotions into like a tin can and coming back to seeing Seth (laughs) is like the opening of the tin can and everything's going crazy and everything's let loose that's how i felt You know, I think that with Fun Home and the band's visit winning in the past few years, it really gives me hope for Broadway. Yeah. Um, and that like these smaller, more adventurous pieces of work can survive and people are behind them and interested. Because Fun Home did have a pretty strong challenger in American Paris. And I actually didn't realize until I was just looking at it now, but it did pretty well for itself. It won four to Fun Home's five, so it's not like Fun Home was a sweep. It just won all the important ones. And I think that the ones that it did win were places where Fun Home, like, just because of the scale of it, didn't really have a bunch of choreography. (laughs) Like, I thought the set was cool and served the purpose of the show, but it wasn't um, anything. Yeah, the American in Paris set was really amazing. But I do think that On the Town should have won choreography. But we'll get into that later. (laughs) It's funny because I actually saw, I saw every show that we're going to be talking about this episode. So it's interesting to like sort of go back and revisit and see if I feel differently. And the answer generally has been no. I feel the same about all of them. What was your uh, American in Paris going experience? So I saw it kind of late in the game. The original cast was still there, but Robert Fairchild was out and I saw the understudy, which I think also maybe impact how I felt about it. I went in expecting to really love it and I was very underwhelmed by it and it really left me cold, which I think we're going to explore. But part of it also, which is not their fault. And I don't like to blame my experience at a musical on my seats, but that does affect your experience. Mm -hmm. This is one of the only times where I was in literally the back row of a theater and at the palace, the balcony is raked very steeply. So it's like really, like I sat, I got in my seats and I kind of got vertigo and I was like, am I going to throw up at this show? (laughs) So that definitely did not help. They did like a professional filming of the West End version. And so watching that, I was like, oh, it's nice to see everyone's faces. But then I realized that it was not the same cast except for the two leads. Mm -hmm. I didn't hate it, but I was glad that Fun Home won. And I liked On the Town a lot more than this, which is similar uh in many ways yeah and american in paris uh played at the palace theater from april 12th 2015 to october 9th uh 2016 so um that gives us about 623 performances which actually isn't that much more than fun home and the book was by craig lucas who we know as the book writer and playwright who uh wrote the script for the light in the piazza music and lyrics by george and ira gershwin rob fisher did the musical score arranging and supervising he was the man who was retrofitting uh the gershwin's music into uh 
this show. Directed and choreographed by Christopher Wielden, and the show is loosely based on the 1951 American musical of the same name that starred Gene Kelly and was directed by Vincent Minnelli. Set in the French capital in the wake of World War II, an American in Paris tells the romantic story of a young American soldier, a beautiful French girl, and an indomitable European city, each yearning for a new beginning in the aftermath of international conflict. All of the reviews for this were raves, but I was Mm -hmm. very underwhelmed, and here's why. (laughs) First of all, even though it is a Gershwin score and Gershwin was a theater composer, it is still a jukebox musical, and like, not only did they add new Gershwin songs for this, but like the original movie also is a jukebox musical. So I think, and I think it's really hard to do like a serious story as a jukebox musical. Like Mamma Mia is one thing, but if you're really trying to have like gravitas, you know, these songs are basically like 1930s pop songs Mm -hmm. in the way that they're constructed. Like they don't really advance the character. Like they kind of provide texture and some of them felt really shoved in there. And then plot wise, I really like a personal pet peeve of mine is like a story where it's about three guys in love with the same woman like I feel like that is so contrived like such a contrived way to create conflict and like really boring and not compelling at all and and I don't like it when the genders are reversed either honestly but that doesn't happen as much and then the woman they're pursuing ends up being like she never really is able to get developed because she's kind of this abstract object of desire yeah on that i hate when the american robert fairchild character is like you should change your name <laughs> i know and it's just because they want to get in the gershwin song liza oh. the dancing was great the music is good but like you know compared to on the town which we're going to talk about which also has a score by leonard bernstein who also is someone who like really flips back and forth between classical and and popular and combines those two in the score and is also very dance heavy. I just wasn't as blown away by this as I wanted to be and as I was by On the Town. Yeah, I think that this is like a Franken show and the seams of where everything's sewn together feel really apparent. Watching the recording, I felt like the instinct here was, you know, there have been a couple of these Gershwin jukebox musicals. I guess probably the most notable was in 1992, early 90s, there was Crazy For You, which, you know, was a show that many had said brought back the American musical. But I think that like choosing to do the Gershwin jukebox musical in such like a moody way and like also being like, well, no, this is serious. There (laughs) won't be any tap dancing is just rude. (laughs) And they literally have conversations in the musical where they're like, should art mean something or should it just be for fun? And it's like, you guys need to have this conversation (laughs) off stage. (laughs) So this is from a New York Times piece about ballet on Broadway. This is a script in which the characters clunkily debate whether art should expose life's dark underbelly or cheer people up, in which they inform one another and the audience that art is important, but love is more so. I wonder if this anxiety about art is expressed so baldly by the characters because the show's creators are anxious about how much meaning they're conveying through motion rather than words. It's a pity because the musical's proclamations of faith in love, a sentiment that is better sung or danced, and its recognition of the dark underbelly are expressed more subtly and thus affectingly in Mr. Wielden's choreography than in Mr. Lucas's dialogue. And I think that the depiction of like post-World War II anywhere has always been a problem. Um, <laughs> well, I think, you know, thinking back to Alain René's 1959 film Hiroshima Mon Amour, this French movie personality and this Japanese woman who was in Japan during the bombing of Hiroshima have these conversations about like what does it mean to actually create this like historic narrative and like how do you you end up just like painting over it too easily. I also think that the recorded production really heightens like a lot of what was bad about it and like I think the original performances sort of elevated it in a way that these like replacements don't and like Leanne Cope and Robert Fairchild who starred in it are dancers first like they were both plucked out of ballet companies to star in this and like their acting leaves a little bit to be desired like when they're not dancing I really liked Leanne Cope when I saw the show from far away but up close she has like something about the wig they gave her she has like a very haunted doll energy that <laughs> yes. was like a little bit off-putting yeah save it for the tales of Hoffman <laughs> <laughs> I think also 
this like decision to take this very name brand Turner Classic Movies movie and translate it into a stage show feels like a bad instinct to me. I feel like that never goes well when they try to do that. Yeah, it doesn't go well. I also just think that movie musicals from, and I think that this kind of came out at the end of the height of the movie musical. When you're looking at the footage from the Vincent Minnelli film, it's like made in Technicolor with a capital T. Right. Um, And, you know, if you haven't seen it, I think that a similar comparison would be, you know, the production design and value of Singing in the Rain. Which has also had very unsuccessful (laughs) attempts to bring it to the stage. And like 42nd Street... I think might have been one of the first to kind of start the trend. I just think that the movie musical of yesteryear and a Broadway show are two different art forms and you can't replicate the magic of a movie musical onto the stage and like nor should you be trying to. Yeah and it feels like by going darker they were trying to avoid that. The New Yorker said On the whole, Wieldin's American in Paris is tasteful, witty, sophisticated, decent-hearted, even lovely often, and a little mild, a little pale. It's not so much something as a meditation on something, and that's what it feels like much of the time. Well, yeah, reading Charles Isherwood's review in the New York Times, I was like, did we see the same thing? You guys didn't see the same thing. (laughs) We saw it in the theater, and we saw the West End film recreation, which always is going to lose some of the magic, Yeah, but it's still the same material. I think learning a little bit about Gershwin, and An American in Paris is an actual, like, an orchestral piece that he wrote while he was living in Paris and in the movie and in this the crowning jewel of both the movie and the stage musical is this you know like 15 minute ballet sequence that is set to the Gershwin music which is like it's amazing it's amazing and I think that Looking at Gershwin's career, he died tragically young, or not tragically young, but... (laughs) Pretty young. Pretty young, 37. Yeah, I would say that's tragically young. Yeah, um, it's actually really interesting to read about, because he had a brain tumor, and, like, kind of read about his behavior, like, leading up to, like, them actually finding out. He's like, why do I always smell burnt rubber? (laughs) (laughs) That wacky Gershwin. (laughs) You know, he was writing uh, music for movies. He really was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. It would be interesting to see, like, what his conception or what his take on this would be, because I feel like... I think we both agree that this is like a really sterilized version of, you know, really beautiful music and dancing. Yeah, agreed. So for the performance, they this was like a really medley heavy performance year. I think that's one thing back when the Tonys were like, you can have like seven to ten minutes, but now the performances are like four minutes. Whenever they do medleys, it's like, hey, remember we got this song, we got this song, and we got this song. And it's like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And I think the most successful performances of the night were the ones that just did one song, like Fun Home and also um, Something Rotten, which Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about next time. Both of them did a great job selling their shows. But this this wasn't a terrible medley. They started with doing a little section from the American in Paris Ballet, which is smart because I think, you know, Robert Fairchild and Leanne Cope's dancing together is like really the most compelling and like electric part of it. And then they do a little bit of Swonderful and I Got Rhythm because that, and that's the part where they're like, we got this song, we got this song, we got all your faves. And I'm sure that they filled a lot of seats and sold a lot of tickets. Yeah. It's like interesting for me. And I think that I also feel this way about Shakespeare. It's like, what is the upper middle classes, like college educated obsession with like these things from yesteryear that like, I don't think people are actually questioning if they like or if they are good, but are investing their time and like mental energy into these things that they think are like highbrow highbrow and like things that you should like totally which i nothing against george or ira gershwin (laughs) like i think that you know they're really important songwriting duo they're really important american artists but i also kind of question like 
people being like, oh, Gershwin, I know that name. Yeah. Of course I'm going to see an American in Paris and crazy for you. Yeah, and I get why people keep trying to do it with Gershwin because they, Gershwin and the Gershwins, because they are such an important songwriting team in the history of Broadway. Like their legacy is incredibly important, but most of their shows were written in sort of a pre-book musical era. So it's like you can't really do anything with those songs. And then you have Porgy and Bess, which is very problematic in, uh, <laughs> in many ways. And, you know, America, American culture has been trying to grapple with it for the past 80 years, mm-hmm. um, semi-successfully. So it's like, what are you going to do? You just got to keep keep trying to make these we, these Franken musicals about him. After the performance, there's like this funny kind of awkward moment where they, they have Alan Cumming leading us into commercial break while I Got Rhythm is playing and he sort of starts singing along to it but it seems like he's just singing along to it because they're like not cutting and he's trying to just like kill time and he's like <laughs> got And I think the last thing I'll say, tying it back to the rest of the season, doing this show, you can't take it with you on the town and on the 20th century is like a solid mood um, yeah. that I think we'll look back at 2015 even more distance and be like, oh, that was kind of interesting. Well, and that's why it's funny that Fun Home and Curious Incident, which are both extremely contemporary, are the ones who ended up taking the top prizes. Like, mm-hmm. we had all of this nostalgia, but it wasn't necessarily what rose to the top yeah. that year. I think maybe we can get into On the Town because it really, I think, very much exists in conversation with An American in Paris. They're both Gene Kelly movies, although they're kind of reverse situations where An American in Paris was an original movie that was turned into a musical. And then this was a musical that was turned into a Gene Kelly movie where almost all of the score was removed. On the Town ran it was at the lyric theater it ran for a little under a year it ran from october 16th 2014 to september 6 2015 and it played 28 previews and 368 performances it is a revival of the 1944 production music by leonard bernstein book and lyrics by betty compton and adolph green this production was choreographed by joshua burgas directed by john rando and the original production was choreographed by jerome robbins and it was based on a ballet that jerome robbins choreographed uh in the early 40s with music by leonard bernstein called fancy free Mm -hmm. and he was like y'all want to expand this into a full musical and the synopsis is fun-loving sailors gaby chip and ozzy have 24 hours of shore leave in new york city and they want to make every second count while Chip hooks up with loudmouth cab driver Brunhilde and Ozzy swoons for prim anthropologist Claire, Gaby falls in love with an actress he sees in an advertisement, Ivy Smith. On the Town is kind of an interesting case because the original production falls before the invention of the Tonys, so we're not really going to be able to talk about the original, so we're going to talk about it a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Not do as deep a dive as we could have because we don't have time, but I think it's definitely worth talking about. And here's like a little summary of like what is good and fun and interesting about it. On the Town was a landmark, the first show by a bunch of bright upstarts, Bernstein, Compton and Green, and Jerome Robbins, all still in their 20s who would go on together and apart to help shape the cultural landscape of the 20th century. Like Oklahoma, which was still running when On the Town opened, it was also among the first musicals that aimed to integrate story, song, and dance into a unified whole. The result was a fresh, contemporary hybrid, the genre-mixing slapstick book and nimble, heartfelt lyrics, the ravishing, jazz-inflected symphonic score, the startlingly modern ballet-to-boogie-woogie choreography, pulsing with erotic urban energy, held together by the shared vision and sensibility of its New York besotted creators. It's a boisterous romp about looking for love in a city of strangers, one that makes no bones about what red-blooded Navy lads and healthy young career girls have on their minds, with a rueful awareness beneath its antic surface of how precious and fleeting each moment becomes for lovers in a time of war. The subject matter was light, Bernstein said in an interview many years later, but the show was serious. This is such an amazing show. The scale of it is really huge. Yeah, I knew nothing about it when I went to see it. I knew it was an early show by all of these 
really, you know, famous, important people and that it was getting raves across the board. And I went with Isabel and like, it was literally jaw dropping. Like there were multiple songs where we just looked at each other afterwards with our mouths hanging open and I ended up seeing it three times. It was just incredible to see. It really felt very old-fashioned in a good way. Like you never see a revival of this scale anymore except for like Lincoln Center. Like Mm -hmm. they're really the only ones who are doing these huge like full orchestra, like 20-something members of the cast. Just an incredible spectacle. But I think that the tone of this is so different from a Lincoln Center revival. They just really have fun with it. It's almost like cartoonish with the costumes and the sets and the larger-than-life characters. I think reading reviews and, like, watching productions of, like, a lot of these, like, golden era musicals, I think even thinking of the revival of Wonderful Town 15 or so years ago like everyone's kind of like this is great nostalgia value but like the show doesn't really hold up i was like convinced that the book had been rewritten um (laughs) and i grew up uh listening to the 1960 studio cast recording so i like knew the show i knew like kind of the hits of the show but i had no idea that the book was so good and the dancing is such an important part of it like i didn't know going into it and i should have known you know Mm -hmm. it was a jerome robbins show but like there are so many show-stopping dance numbers there's an incredible dream ballet in the second act that is just like take your breath away amazing and going back to the cartoon nature of it ben brantley writes in his review on the town traffics in two kinds of exaggerations that of the earthy even dirty cartoon and of the gossamer romance of poets this reflects the bicultural nature of robbins and bernstein who belonged equally to broadway in the concert hall Some of its numbers, in which comic archetypes cozy up or collide, could be placed directly into the cell of an animated Looney Tunes short. Others could slide seamlessly onto the stage of the Paris Opera. This on the town makes you forget that such contrasting sensibilities could ever be considered irreconcilable, at least in the world of musical comedy. Beowulf bore its simple sliding sets, Jess Goldstein's costumes, and Jason Lyons' lighting evoke the city as a super candy store in which all manner of sweets are on offer. What's surprising is how fluent the entire cast is in both the high and low languages they're required to speak. And the thing, the problem with a show like this is that it's going to be a rare occurrence that you would ever see a production of it that's this good. Exactly. That's why I was like, I got to go back a bunch of times because I'm probably not going to see anything like this in my lifetime, like of this scale of this show. In 2005, we were wondering where the dancing robot was, but (laughs) lo and behold, On the Town has a dancing dinosaur. That was one of the jaw-dropping moments. Like, it really is so... Like, I couldn't believe how fresh and surprising it felt. And I think it helped that I went in not really knowing too much about it, except it was about, like, horny sailors. But, like, it was just so uh, inventive and surprising. Yeah, and I think that something to note, too, with this production is that there aren't really any huge stars attached to it. You know, I think that this was kind of a stamp on the star quality of a few people that were in it. But, you know, it's not like, Catherine Zeta-Jones yeah. <laughs> or um, Daniel Radcliffe. And they were smart because it does really need triple threats, not necessarily in all of them, but the, definitely the three men need to be able to dance really well. And well, I guess only Gaby really needs to be the triple threat because he has the most heavy lifting to do both in singing and dancing. But Tony Asbeck is incredible. One thing that did strike me about the production, it being three male leads and three female leads. You know, I think that there was like a lack of uh, representation, people of color wise. Yeah, and they did um, They did bring in Misty Copeland to play Ivy. She introduces them at the Tonys. She does, yeah. And it's funny because, like, in the original production, the original production was actually notable for how diverse it was. It was, like, one of the first fully integrated shows. Like, it had many people of color in the ensemble, and the original Ivy was a Japanese-American woman um, named Sono Asado, which was kind of notable, especially since, you know, we were still in World War II when it was happening. Mm -hmm. And there there is a kind of a relic of that where they, like, keep calling her exotic Ivy Smith. And it's Mm -hmm. like, 
Megan Fairchild is not, <laughs> not exotic. So, and speaking of, you know, connections to American in Paris, both of them starred a pair of siblings, Robert Fairchild and Megan Fairchild, both ballet dancers turned Broadway stars in this 2015 season. So one more thing about the original production. So like the only grown up around was George Abbott, so who, <laughs> who was in his 50s at the time. And, and he directed it apparently at like before the curtain went up on opening night, he like took all the leads aside, which included Comden and Green, who were playing Ozzy and Claire and he took them all aside and he said no matter what happens out there tonight I want you to know one thing as far as I'm concerned you're a very polite group of young people (laughs) 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 which I'm obsessed with but the funny thing is so the original production was a hit it ran for a little over a year which was like a big hit in those days but it was arrived in 1971 and it ran for two months and it was arrived in 1998 and it also ran for two months mm-hmm. and this revival even though it did run for almost a year it was definitely losing money for a lot of that just because like the lyric is such a big theater and it was obviously a, an extremely expensive production because so many people were in it and I think it was one of those things like I remember reading you know of course in 2015 I was very actively perusing Broadway world and people were always like when is on the town gonna close (laughs) like I can't believe it's still open like I can't believe they're losing like the producers are just like pumping all this money into it but thank god they did honestly there was such an aggressive advertising campaign yeah that is one show that I remember seeing every subway station every cab also the poster sucked (laughs) yeah it was it was just like very bad graphic photo yeah i'm excited to talk about the second revival from the 90s which i think george wolf directed and leah delaria was yeah and jesse tyler ferguson (laughs) and even in the one in the 70s donna mckechnie played ivy and bernadette peters played hildy so Mm -hmm. they got some future stars in in all of them so the performance it starts with tony yazbek sitting in the audience next to josh groban and his date kat dennings singing lucky to be me what a day fortune smiled and came my way bringing love i never thought i'd see i'm so lucky to be me Thunderstruck at the change in my life. At once I wanted you, never dreamed you'd want me to. And he kind of like gets up and is dancing through the audience and like gives flowers to Anna Winter. Oh, (laughs) yes. And he like brings up Cheetah Rivera and gives her a little twirl. Yeah. (laughs) And then they come out and they do a little New York, New York. It's all great fun. That score is just so amazing. Like, every song in it is a banger. I feel like Bernstein really just gets how to translate the energy of New York City into sound in a way that a lot of people don't. Like, the dissonance of the opening chords and like kind of the vamps between like scenes and songs if i with no context heard those would just think of like the hustle and bustle of new york city yeah this might be like the ultimate new york musical i think it's become such a trope to be like this show is a love letter to new york city <laughs> um but like this is the original love letter to it new really york city. is and they said that when they were writing it like comden and green were talking to the set designer and we're like which parts of new york do you want to do sets for and we'll like <laughs> we'll write them in and i want to also say that philip boykin who's been in like a bunch of different things in the recent years who's in the Sunday in the Park with George Revival. He plays a couple different smaller parts, but he has such a beautiful voice and he sings that opening workman shipyard number when the boys are coming off the ship and it's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a really beautiful way to open the show, like a show that does become so like fast paced and frenetic for a lot of it having this kind of like quiet meditative pre-dawn number is it's very sweet way to start it there's like a new jerome robbins critical biography out by wendy lesser and she's like the adding of comden and green's lyrics really cheapen like what jerome robbins and leonard bernstein were trying to do with 
fancy free and i disagree i think that these Compton and Green lyrics in book are, it's kind of amazing how well they hold up. Yeah. And you know, it's the marriage of the high and low. Like mm-hmm. that's what they were looking for. And that's kind of, it kind of sums up New York. So the play that really swept uh, the evening and was arguably a pretty big phenomenon in New York at the time was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which played at the Ethel Barrymore Theater from October 2014 until September of 2016. That's almost a two-year run, which for a play that doesn't have any sort of like star quality to it i mean i feel like a star-studded production would never would be a limited engagement but still it's pretty impressive so it ran for 799 performances with 23 previews and i think that the big thing to note about this show well the two big things to kind of note about this show Um, is that it was originally produced by the National Theatre of Great Britain, which, like, you know, the non-profit theaters that we have in New York, or the non-profit sphere that we have in America, like, people are producing work that's subsidized in a way that they don't necessarily need to be worrying about, like, star quality or ticket sales. that's true. It was written by Simon Stevens, um... And it was based on the novel by Mark Haddon. It was directed by Marion Elliott, and the scenic and costume design were by Bunny Christie. The play was like largely choreographed, and Scott Graham did that. Synopsis-wise, we got Christopher, 15 years old, stands beside Mrs. Shear's dead dog. It has been speared with a garden fork. It is seven minutes after midnight, and Christopher is under suspicion. He records each fact in the book he is writing to solve the mystery of who murdered Wellington the dog. He has an extraordinary brain and is exceptional at math, but he is ill-equipped to interpret everyday life. He has never ventured alone beyond the end of his road, He detests being touched, and he distrusts strangers. But Christopher's detective work, forbidden by his father, takes him on a frightening journey that turns his whole world upside down. Simon Stevens came up with the idea to adapt it because he was working at the National Theater, and the author of the book, Mark Haddon, also was, like, doing some sort of residency there, and he was like, you know, I want to bring this to theater. And I think that it was an interesting project to... um, pursue because it's a novel which are famously in a lot of cases hard to adapt it was told from the first person but i think that in the way that peter schaefer and john dexter really work together in the developing of equus which i feel like has not to equate the young man in equus's like disturbedness with christopher's disability here but i think that there are a lot of similarities in the general spheres of each of the shows totally. um, so yeah i think in the same way that john dexter and uh peter schaefer were working on developing equus simon stevens and marion elliott were working on developing this show i mean reading a published version of the script there are very little stage directions which is interesting because because what I think people really took away from this show is kind of like the choreographed spectacle of everything. And I think that Marion Elliott has become such a driving force in the international theater as of late. And I think that part of the reason why, and I think this show illustrates it perhaps best, is that she knows how to translate the media language or the language of our contemporary times into like, she knows how to translate them into stage spectacle that don't read as cheap, that aren't just like putting huge video projection screens all over everything. Totally. There's like a cinematic element to her work that people really respond well to. Yeah, and she wins her second Tony tonight after her staging of Warhorse, mm-hmm. which she co-directed. Uh, it's like almost overwhelming the way that they stage it. They had performances specifically for like autistic audiences where they kind of toned down the intensity of it to like make it more accessible 
um, which I thought was really cool and, and uh, you know, nice that they did that. Well, I think that the interesting thing with that is that when you ask anyone about this play, they're like, oh, it's about like an autistic teenager who's solving a mystery. But while I was like reading interviews and like looking at video interviews, like they really hesitate to ever use the word autistic, which like I don't know if is like a bad thing or a good thing or just something that they are like, we don't want to like box ourselves in by medical definitions or right. know that like there's such a wide spectrum of this that we don't want to like portray it incorrectly but I think that like the main challenge here is like making the world that neurotypical people see as familiar is translated into the unfamiliarness that someone who's a neurotypical experiences on a daily basis the star Alex Sharp wins the best actor Tony and he's like fresh out of Juilliard. He's like 25 years old. And he's on stage the whole time for this show. It's really, and it's not even like, oh, you're on stage. You're like sitting at a kitchen table. It's like you're on stage, like doing all this choreography and like using your body. I think review wise, I was actually surprised that Hilton L's of the New Yorker gave it like a very favorable review. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, like heralded the script and said that it was like amazing. He says the story is at heart a sentimental one, but in Elliot's hand, we don't feel manipulated or at least not cynically so. She is trying to make show business matter in a way that transcends mere entertainment and is so nimble and poetic. So keep up the good work, Mary and Elliot. Yeah, you're killing it. Did the Great Angels in America. We're excited for company. And a little bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think we should, even though we didn't really do research on Gigi, I think we can mention it a little bit because I think it ties into this episode because it also, the movie starred Leslie Caron, who also starred in American in Paris. Oh. Um, so it's, it's based on a novella by Colette, which was made into a movie first and then also made into a musical, which, you know, like American in Paris. And it was a... Lerner and Lowe score. I feel like Alan J. Lerner and Lerner and Lowe kind of have like the perviest body of work because they have, you know, My Fair Lady, which is very kinky, which we will get into later. (laughs) And then they have Gigi, which is about, you know, grooming underage girls to become like high class prostitutes for much older men. And he did the lyrics for the Lolita musical. So it's like, (laughs) Lerner, what are you doing? (laughs) Keep it in your pants. And I think the the other thing to talk about for Gigi is that it starred Vanessa Hudgens and her high school musical co-star Ashley Tisdale (laughs) presents the, uh, introduces the performance, which I thought was very cute. So now please welcome my best friend, Vanessa Hudgens, Tony nominee, Victoria Clark, Corey Cott, and the company of Gigi. And the performance itself, Vanessa Hudgens is very, very keeping the energy high. Yeah, no, it is actually really astounding. She's like giggling. She's doing a lot of giggling and like running around. I don't know. It seems kind of fun, but it also seems exhausting. In like several re- reviews that I read, um, the only part of the production that people were really getting behind was Victoria Clark as like her aunt grandma. Yeah, Victoria Clark plays her grandma, which is <laughs> probably <laughs> a little devastating. Well, I think she's supposed to be like a uh, young. Yeah, I think that's it. The, so like a lot of the criticisms were that it is this kind of icky story that really got scrubbed clean to appeal to Vanessa Hudgens's fan base and is also like kind of boring to them so yeah. it wasn't really for anybody But interesting talking about all the connections is that um, Gigi is based on the the novella by Colette. But Colette, Allison's dad in Fun Home, um, gives her like sends her like a big Colette anthology while she's in college. And 
For those of you at home who are not aware, Colette is a notorious lesbian. A lesbian with a very cynical view of heterosexuality (laughs) as expressed in Gigi. Yeah. um, It's kind of funny that Colette is like prominently featured on Broadway in two (laughs) different ways. Um, I'm sure the copies of The Pure and The Impure really went up after this season. I think maybe we can wrap it up, right? I think we've talked about everything. Next time we're going to be talking about the other two best musical nominees something rotten and the visit we're going to be talking about the king and i and on the 20th century we're going to be talking more about some more plays maybe some play revivals Mm -hmm. and we're also going to talk about briefly we're going to talk about the original musicals that did not make it to tony glory so you can email us at my little tony's podcast at gmail.com we love getting emails we love getting DMs on Instagram at My Little Tonys. Also on Twitter, that's where you can find us. Yeah, people have been reaching out to us in all different modes of digital communication, <laughs> and we appreciate all of that. Yeah, we love it. Keep doing what you're doing. Like and rate us on <laughs> iTunes. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.